1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of fight back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It is a bold idea for sure. Quebec premier Francois Legault's announcement that he plans to implement a financial penalty against adult Quebecers who are not vaccinated against COVID-19. Legault did not offer the amount of this so-called healthcare contribution other than to say it will be significant. But he did acknowledge that his staff is receiving legal advice on working out the details. His rationale is that the unvaxxed 10% make up 50% of ICU admissions. Critics say it's probably illegal, maybe even unconstitutional, and may violate the Canada Health Act. But at least one recent poll shows 60% of Canadians are in favor of taxing the unvaccinated. And if Legault was trying to scare Quebecers who are not yet vaccinated, the tactic may have worked. The day after the announcement was made, thousands of people in Quebec signed up for the vaccine. Joining Libby on Wednesday to discuss this controversial but intriguing idea, Kara Zwiebel, director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Dr. Alain Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at University Health Network, and Dr. Kerry Bowman, a bioethicist at the University of Toronto.
2: I don't support it. I see lots of problems with it. and, you know, this is a long way from an enticement. This is really a punishment and calling it a contribution. I forget what worthy is in French, but it was similar. Um, it's not a contribution. I mean, really, you know, uh it's really not. There's an element of punishment to it. I'd also say, Libby, I'll be brief because I'm sure you want to roll to the other guests. But I also wonder how effective it is. And I'd like to hear what Alain has to say, because, um, so unvaccinated by definition means zero vax and we're told that with Omicron that that 3 is really the number you want to get to and the the science is still emerging on that. Um that's 6 to 9 months away before any of these people would actually reach that and this wave is crashing upon us right now. I wonder how effective it will be.
3: Let's go to Dr. Vaisman. And uh, I have to say that when I saw that tweet saying that thousands have signed up, I was surprised because uh, I've said before, my opinion is that if you aren't unvaccinated now, you're not going to be unvaccinated. If none of the inducements and punishments or uh, restrictions have, have made a difference, then I don't think anything will. Dr. Vaisman.
4: Yeah, I think those are some really really good points that Dr. Bowen made about, uh, you know, what are we defining as fully vaccinated? And really, as you said, is this really going to get people to be more vaccinated? Does it violate the Health Act, all those things? The other thing to keep in mind is that, unfortunately, with Omicron, the more and more we learn about it, the more we understand that vaccination, it, it remains highly effective against hospitalization, but less effective against any kind of transmission. So picking it up somewhere between 30 40%, even with three doses, so while it's true that you prevent people from being hospitalized, you know, you're just going to see an overwhelming number of people who will still be able to transmit So this enticement or this punishment to get people to have to pay for their own care, or to pay for this. It becomes less and less clear what, you know, how effective this kind of thing is going to be, whether it even makes sense.
3: I am now going to bring in Kara Zwiebel, director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association.
5: Were you surprised? I was, I guess I probably shouldn't be surprised anymore at, at what, uh, what governments are coming up with during the pandemic, but I was surprised to see that this is something that the government was going to, to pursue. Um, you know, I think it's a, a fairly drastic measure and, um, it's also just not clear to me what, what the objective is, um, given that, you know, even if, if they were to get this passed and, and done in the next, you know, day or two, it would still be, uh, six months before anyone affected by it would be fully vaccinated if they if they were to go out and get vaccinated.
3: Do you think it's uh, legal, constitutional? Um, I think it's uh, certainly vulnerable to, um, to constitutional challenge. I,
5: I think a lot will depend on, uh, you know, we need to see the details and exactly how they're going to go about trying to, to implement this. Um, the other thing is that, you know, the, the rights that we have in the charter are are subject to limits. The government can limit those rights if they do so in a way that's reasonable, but the way that we assess reasonableness is by looking at the objective that the government is trying to achieve and um, and seeing if they're doing it in a way that's, you know, proportional. And and I think that's something that we, we haven't really heard from the government on it, is, is what exactly is the objective. Um, and I, I think sort of punishing the unvaccinated is, is probably not a
2: pressing and, and substantial objective.
3: Let's uh, get some uh, final thoughts from uh, Dr. Kerry Bowman.
2: Yeah, look, I'm going to say something that everyone on the panel today has heard me say a lot of times, but I'm going to say it again, Libby. A lot of this is a distraction. The greatest threat to all of us as Canadians is the global pandemic, and we continue to do next to nothing about it. It's just a matter of time until we all have a lesson in the Greek alphabet if we don't deal with that, and it's being ignored.
1: Dr. Carrie Bowman, bioethicist at the University of Toronto, Kara Zwiebel, director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and Dr. Alan Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at University Health Network. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. How will the prime minister react? That was a big question after Quebec Premier Francois Legault announced his bombshell plan to tax the unvaxxed. Many people expected Justin Trudeau to condemn the idea. But initially, he wouldn't say what he thinks about the controversial and perhaps even illegal plan. Trudeau said he would need to see more details first. Does he just want to stay out of the Quebec premier's way? Does the prime minister actually support the idea? Libby asked these questions of Robin Sears, a crisis communications consultant and former NDP strategist, and Jason Leader, conservative strategist and president of Enterprise.
6: At this point, it's sort of parody, right? Like if, if Justin Trudeau went out to his garage and saw Francois Legault stealing his bike, he would congratulate him for stealing the bike, and you know, just sort of, just sort of wave him on his merry way. He will obviously do anything to avoid criticizing the guy. Now, whether or not this is a good policy or not, we can have a discussion about that. I don't know. I don't know how Robin feels. I've got some some feelings about it as well. But I will say that um, I think it's a, a little bit worrisome for the federation generally that the prime minister, um, you know, essentially won't say a word whenever uh, the premier of Quebec, uh, you know, takes a position. That is, this is a pretty risky, pretty out there policy uh, supported by a lot of Canadians. I think a lot of Canadians are super tired of the pandemic and they're really angry and they're really frustrated with that last 10%, you know, their neighbors and their friends who won't, they've cut them out of their lives. We've essentially shunned them from society so they can't go to restaurants or anywhere, essentially leave their house legally other than to buy groceries. So it's a very, very, very risky sort of, uh, you know, sort of step in that direction. I'm not surprised the prime minister wouldn't take on the premier of Quebec because he's got to get elected again in Quebec, and he's just he's so afraid of him. Uh,
3: Robin, what do you make of it?
7: Well, you know, this prime minister
3: has very
7: hesitant, let me put it that way, uh, Quebec credentials. You know, he grew up in Ottawa. He went to an English-speaking university, McGill. He spent much of his twenties snowboarding in BC. And so he often gets Quebec wrong. Most of his worst political decisions, language discrimination, anti-Muslim legislation, the SNC fiasco, and now this thing, are, are based on the fact that he doesn't really read Quebec very well. He doesn't feel comfortable in making judgments about Quebec. And of course, as Jason points out, he needs to win Quebec voters. But that's, I think, the root of this. He's—he's he's always Quebec is his third rail, as it were. Now, uh, as to the decision, crazy, absolutely crazy. Uh, I cannot believe that the premier of Quebec thinks this is going to be effective. Uh, you know what will happen if a homeless person who is not vaccinated has COVID and comes to a hospital and can't pay two hundred dollars, let alone two thousand dollars, to be treated? It's just, it's, it just won't work and. Ethically, I just find it offensive.
3: I've seen kind of uh, convoluted explanations that there may be ways to make it uh, accord with the Canada Health Act.
6: You know, there's ways to do this. The question is, should we? And and, and listen, I, I, I am as frustrated as as anyone. But this is a very, very dangerous sort of idea. Um, you know, and, and, and I know that, you know... Libertarian style or conservative style arguments on this, people sort of laugh. Oh no, that's you know it's impossible. If you would have told me three years ago in Canada that we'd be talking about a huge tax on people who didn't take a medical treatment, I would say you know that's that's pretty out there. I mean, we're not talking. That's that's really weird to talk about in in Canada. And so this is this has gone pretty far. And the truth is, Robin actually had a really good point there that I wanted to highlight. Will it work? Is the question right? So we know it's a populist measure. We know why he's done it. He wanted to change the channel from losing his own medical officer of health. I'm talking about the the premier of Quebec now, and uh, and 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 some and some pretty bad COVID stats in terms of deaths. You know, they're double the rest of the country. Um, so he wants to change the channel. He does this. He throws close this trial balloon. The question is, will it work? Is if you're if you've if you've already decided not to get vaccinated by. Being shunned from bars, not being able to go to a Habs game, your friends and neighbors cutting you out of their socials or social circles, your kids getting laughed at at school, is a two hundred and fifty or a five hundred dollar or a thousand dollar tax going to do it? I'm not sure it is, and it will hurt the poor. Robin made a really good point about the homeless. Like, if I'm if I'm a rich guy living in the suburbs, I might pay the thousand dollar tax. Whatever, I don't care. I've already made this decision. It's going to hurt the poor the most, and so it's a very dangerous policy.
1: Jason Leader, conservative strategist and president of Enterprise, and Robin Sears, a crisis communications consultant and former NDP strategist. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's best of fight back. Coming up after the break, the Hunger Games for rapid tests continue.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. If you're having trouble getting your hands on a free COVID rapid test, join the majority of Ontarians. The latest giveaways at Toronto's Fairview Mall have seen people wait for hours only to be disappointed when a thousand kits are given away after a relatively short time. And even if you are prepared to pay for a rapid antigen test, they are nearly impossible to find sold out online and in most pharmacies that have carried them. And some of the pharmacies that actually perform the rapid tests for an even bigger price have very strict rules about who can get one. The Trudeau liberals are promising millions of tests by the end of the month, which might end up being after the height of the Omicron wave has passed. Do they actually have these tests in the country? If so, why are they not being distributed? Libby was joined by a panel of stakeholders to discuss. Kiro Massey, pharmacist and owner at Lawler Pharmacy in Toronto. Dean Miller, pharmacist, president and CEO of Whole Health Pharmacy. And Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association.
8: There's so much to unpack here. And and I think it's overly complex than it has to be. And if you think about where we should be, and where we want to be. It's free, rapid distribution of these tests. Uh, It's so important for screening, particularly right now with the, uh, essentially what we're seeing is the changes in criteria for the PCR testing is going to put more demand for rapid tests. And what we have is a perfect storm of lack of supply. There wasn't a, a strong strategy for getting it out to individuals. So we're now engaged with government. And we've been asking uh, for several months, uh, if not years now, to uh, actually have a a program in place where it would be free distribution of these rapid antigen tests through pharmacies uh, and not have the scenario where it's just utter chaos that we've seen through LCBO and the malls. All these things uh, create the scenario we're in right now, which is less than ideal.
3: Uh, Dean, I know that you have been ordering tests, and and Justin was talking about free tests, but a lot of people are willing to pay, and still, it's a huge problem.
9: One thing that we weren't doing for the longest time, you know, we had, you know, heard about the government providing these free tests for pharmacies, so we kind of held off. And, you know, of course, Omicron hit, you know, just prior to Christmas, and you know the phone started to light up and everybody wanted a, a rapid antigen test and our pharmacists needed uh, needed a supply so we went out and uh, and we were able to find one <laughs> that was able to supply but uh, it was tough but there's there's a little bit out there but not very much
3: Kiro Masse uh, is it the case that that you as a pharmacist have to compete with the government for getting these tests?
4: currently even from speaking to people that are involved in the distribution chain, the government, the federal government, is finally getting it together and purchasing as many of these as they can so they can make a sort of grand announcement and distribute them, hopefully not too late, to the general public, uh, to distribute them to the provinces, and obviously the provinces will then distribute them to the people. The, The issue is bigger than, in my opinion... Bigger than where it's being sold, where it's being provided, the bigger issue is the fact that this has been distributed in other jurisdictions like England for close to a year now, free of charge, to the general public. And here in Canada, we we were just sitting on it. We didn't do anything about it. I was actively personally engaged in this, and Justin can probably attest to this, all the way back last December of last year with the government to get these approved, get these on the market. I wasn't alone. There were plenty of other people. And the federal government was just banking it all on vaccines. And as great as vaccines are, they're one tool in your arsenal, and I always say this, if you're fighting this war, you have to use every weapon you have. And rapid tests, if I could just stress the fact that they're great, they're a lot more accessible, They're a lot more viable as a testing option than PCR, as you've seen that PCR testing, there's limited capacity. You need a lot more resources to actually do it. With the amount of spread that you're having with Omicron and the shorter incubation period of Omicron, it just makes perfect sense to use rapid tests to detect it. And the federal government simply failed to provide these, in my opinion, in a timely fashion, and then you have people that are selling it on the black market for 70, I've heard even $160. Wow. And the elephant in the room is why are they being sold in the first place? They shouldn't be.
1: Kiro Massey, pharmacist and owner at Lawler Pharmacy in Toronto, Dean Miller, pharmacist president and CEO of Whole Health Pharmacy, and Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. During a stressful economic time when Toronto City councillors are soon to consider a 2.3% increase to the police budget for this year, some are questioning why Toronto still has a mounted police unit. What is the use of police on horseback in 2022? Not to mention the cleanup of horse poop that's required after they walk the streets. They also back up traffic and, in some cases, add to gridlock. Amid budget shortfalls and the changing demands of modern policing, some North American police services have disbanded their mounted units in recent years or turned to private donors to cover the cost. Is it time to put the mounted unit out to pasture? Libby asked this of John Sewell, member of the Toronto Police Accountability Coalition and former Toronto Mayor, but first spoke with Toronto Police Staff Sergeant Brian Campbell about the functions performed by the mounted unit.
10: Our mounted unit, uh, um, historically, uh, one of our primary functions has been uh, crowd management at large public gatherings, and that could be uh, demonstrations. It could uh, include uh, sporting events, uh, such as uh, the two million people that uh, were in the downtown core for the Raptors parade, um, large annual community festivals that, uh, that happen each uh, year. Um, but we also serve uh, a multitude of functions uh, when we're out on horseback. Each day our officers are going out, and when we're not uh, committed to um, crowd management responsibilities, we're doing those high-visibility patrols um, in different uh, neighbourhoods throughout Toronto. Uh, to be that high-visibility, uh, we... Where, where we can, we support our divisional, uh, units by taking some of these radio calls, um, that are coming in and, and, addressing them. We can do that on horseback. Uh, we are enforcing, um, traffic laws, uh, where appropriate. Uh, a lot of the times, um, we are being called upon to assist divisions in searches for missing vulnerable persons. Uh, there are areas as, as urban as Toronto is, there are, areas in and around Toronto that uh, have more of a rural setting, so uh, the horses when searching for these individuals are at a higher um, uh, sight line. Uh, When you're sitting on our horses, you're about 10 feet in the air, and the horses can navigate some of this rough terrain uh, in any type of weather.
3: Okay, now I am going to bring in John Sewell, who is a member of the Toronto Police Accountability Coalition and the former mayor of Toronto. What's your take on the, on the horseback unit? Is it worth $5.9 million bucks when the police board is looking for another $25 million?
9: Yeah, well, the first thing I want to say is, yes, I do like horses. They are terrific. They're magnificent beasts, as, as the, uh, the officer was saying. But at the end of the day, I think you can say that the mounted unit is a bit of a thrill. Most of the things that the mounted unit does can be easily handled by other parts of the police force, including this idea of uh, searching in rough terrain. I mean, the police now have drones. So, I mean, they can. that's probably a much better way of doing it, using police horses as a way of getting police uh, and, and the community to talk together I mean, a better way of doing that is taking off the police armor, getting rid of the gun, getting rid of the taser, so you're really dealing with a real, live person rather than an armed individual, if you wanted good community engagement. And in terms of crowd management, I think we can easily say that can easily be dealt with by police cars and, and other police officers. So at the end of the day, I think you'd say it's a bit of a frill. And when you're if you've got almost $6 million there... There's many other useful ways to spend it. Let me give you one simple one. If we decided to give those people who are homeless $1,000 a month in order to get an apartment, you know, that's maybe $12,000 a year per person, we could actually get 600 of those homeless people into apartments for that amount of money. And I think put that way, you begin to say, well, you know, maybe there's some things we just can't continue doing because there's better ways to spend that money. And and that's the way I would approach the whole thing about the mounted units. There's better ways to spend $6 million than on this function.
3: A uh, Hamilton spec columnist is calling it a highly Instagrammable
1: uh, PR unit.
9: <laughs> yes, not bad. It, that's what
1: it is.
3: That's what it's it a is. very, and- very expensive one.
1: John Sewell, member of the Toronto Police Accountability Coalition and former Toronto Mayor, and Toronto Police Staff Sergeant Brian Campbell. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was, and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Dennis in Brampton phoned to say he feels healthcare needs to receive more funding.
9: We're suffering from a chronic underfunding of health care in the province of Ontario, which is not a political statement because all parties have had a hand in it. Uh, we are the lowest uh, spending per capita on health care in Canada. I spent 40 years in the healthcare care business, 22 of those at, uh, in Brampton, and uh, I've been away from it now at least 20 years and nothing has changed.
0: We have a revenue problem, not a spending problem. And now Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout call of the week is Pat in Toronto, who also called about Francois Legault's unvaxxed tax.
11: I think this is very important for most of us who are over age 60, listening to Zoomer radio, because think about it. If we're ending up in the ICU and you've got a 77-year-old cranky old man, (laughs) i.e. me, versus a 40-year-old who's got three kids, who do you think is going to get the ICU bed? And I mean, I think that should be at the top of the list. I also can't believe that we're saying that the majority rights aren't important. I mean, what about democracy? And so My suggestion would be put this on a referendum and see where the answers would come out. And maybe you don't charge them. Maybe you just lock them in their houses right now for, because, I mean, we've got a problem and people are dying because of other people's inaction. It's as simple as that.
1: That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback.
0: The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Ecock and Zeev Paddy. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.